Welcome back to this week's edition of the Rock and Roll Ghost Podcast. This week we have Jamie Winterstern, uh, the director behind the upcoming uh, film release Supercell. Uh, it's coming to theaters and video on demand on the 17th, correct, of March? Yep, that's correct. All right. Well, excuse me, sorry, I'm not sure what's going on. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about how this project started. I mean, what what was the what was this the you know the beginning origins of it and why this story? Well, I I, I would take it back to 2019. Uh, I went storm chasing with uh, my fiance, and uh, we. It's been something that I've always wanted to do. I, I spent a lot of time in Florida, uh, just obsessing over the sky. There's a lot of lightning and thunderstorms in Florida. I'm from Montreal, Canada originally, so us snowbirds during the winter and throughout the season, we would spend a lot of time in Florida. So I've always been fascinated with the sky and, and I, I've always wanted to, on my bucket list, go storm chasing, tornado chasing. And uh, in 2019, we finally did it and I got hooked. Uh, when, you, when you go out there and you see these storms uh, up close and personal, uh, they're bigger than anything that, that you can imagine. And uh, I think after a couple trips, I went back with another friend of mine because I got so addicted to it. Uh, I realized that there was a story to be told about the storm chasing community and that we hadn't seen a movie about the storm chasing community since 1996, which of course was Twister. Yeah. And that, that led to the inspiration of writing it. So um, when did you come to decide on how to tell the story and, and what, was, what was your reason for uh, telling it in the manner you did? Well, I, I would say that I um, always wanted to direct uh, feature, feature length films. I've always wanted to make a movie. Um, at, at, up to that point, you know, I was uh, in, in advertising. I directed a series for NBC uh, earlier. And uh, I just, I didn't know what story, you know, I realized, especially now, as opposed to maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, where directors directed and writers wrote, you know, the crafts were defined. Whereas over the last, I don't know, couple of decades, you, you, now you find filmmakers that have to, they have to basically write what they direct. It's, it's kind of like a prerequisite today. So I knew I had to write, and, and I, I am a writer, but it, it's, it doesn't come as naturally as directing does. So I, I really had to find a story I was passionate about. Now, of course, I found uh, storm chasing as a subject matter, but I was also going through some personal hardships, uh, losing my mother to Alzheimer's. And you know, going through that experience and, and, and what it did to my family, that I, I found that as kind of the fuel to the, the family aspect, the family themes that I needed to tell what would be a storm chasing film um, with that as the core, the heart of the movie. Okay. Um, and you co-wrote the movie with, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't write her name down. Was it Anna? And Anna Elizabeth James, yeah. James, okay. Um, and uh, how, did, how did you, come to her to collaborate what was the, the reason why you two chose to work together well Annie she uh she went to USC uh film school with me she she's an alum so we 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 went through school together and in fact there's a there's a pretty big representation of, of USC uh, uh alum on the film in different crew positions you know 
Anna co-wrote with me. Uh, our cinematographer, Andrew Jarek, was in our class. Our editor, Daniel Hanna, was also in our class. Corey Wallace, the composer, also USC. So it was kind of a USC family. And I, <laughs> that's a cute dog. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I had to put her, put her on the floor and there wasn't any easy way to do it with the computer plugged in. She could join the call. She's, yeah, no, she's she's been acting a little strange today, so I'm a little concerned. But uh, sorry okay. about that. <laughs> no, so so basically, you know, Anna was um, very close friend of mine. Uh, she she's a, she's a writer. She's a very gifted writer, and you know, for for me to tackle on not just writing a screenplay, but to write something that could be produced, um, you know, she was a perfect fit and. Obviously, there was no finance, there was no money. It was just, hey, Annie, I have this idea. Do you want to on spec just write this screenplay with me? And 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 she did. We, you know, she lives in Utah. I flew out there. Uh, I think it was July of 2019, um, and I spent seven days with her, and we pumped out the first draft. And uh, of course, as as Ernest Hemingway famously says, every first draft is shit. So it took probably another year of rewriting uh, to get it to a point where I could share it with producers. But, you know, it was just, we had a relationship. She's a mother of four uh, great kids. Uh, she knew my family well. So there was a personal connection there. Um, and it was just, it was an easy fit to work with her. Yeah, it's got to be, uh, I can imagine, write, you know, writing with a partner nowadays has got to be a hell of a lot easier than it probably used to be y'all. You, you, you know, if you did that before, you didn't used to have to be in a central location or just send stuff uh, through the through mail a lot to go back and forth. Um, so a lot of that yeah, was I, done, a lot of that was done back and forth over email, I gather. Well, no, you see, the thing with me, um, and, and it's something that I, I don't know, I know different writer, writing partners, writing groups, they work differently. And, and some people work very well over Zoom sessions and emailing back and forth. But I, I like to be in the same room with someone. And and, okay. they were, and I thought that, you know, listen, Los Angeles is just, it's, it's like a chaotic city with a lot of distractions. You go somewhere like South Jordan, Utah, where there really isn't much to do, but write. It was really a, 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 a like a haven for me to focus on the writing. And what was nice is I would fly out there and we would spend a week and then, you know, let it simmer for a couple months. And then I'd go out back, go back there uh, to do revisions. And uh, it was, it was a nice process for me and her. I, I enjoyed working in the room with her. Yeah. So in between the, you know, as you say, letting it simmer, are you working on like uh, ad campaigns and stuff like that just to kind of keep the, the lights on and everything? Exactly. So I have a production company called Swipe Market where we work with predominantly tech tech companies in Silicon Valley and we do all sorts of video marketing for them. And yeah, it pays the bills, but it, it's not nearly as fulfilling as, as making the movies. And uh, yeah, I, I would try and uh, balance all of that, but I, you know, when you know, at least for me and Supercell, for, as soon as the four-year journey started, and it's been a four-year journey, mm -hmm. it's been kind of impossible to turn off my my brain when it comes to the script and the story and, and making this movie. And I feel like maybe some directors or, or eventually with more experience, you know, multitasking between stories might come easier, but 
I had I had more or less a tunnel vision since 2019. Yeah, well, I mean, somebody like uh, Scorsese or Ridley Scott has a lot of resources. I mean, I, I yeah, I, I I've read all of these projects like that. Somebody like uh, Ridley Scott has because through his Scott Free banner, it's like there's just stuff constantly humming in that in that office building or, or wherever he's at. It's like I and the man is you know. Plus, he's in his 80s. He's still working like a, a maniac, you know, which is crazy. But my, yeah, you my, really have to have. Favorite, what's that? I was just going to say, uh, to your point, my, one of my favorite examples is people, some people know, obviously, but Steven Spielberg, right? Let's not forget, he right. put out Jurassic Park the same year he put out uh, Schindler's List. Right. And working on both films simultaneously, yeah. which is insane. Yeah. Yeah. No, I. A lot of directors that do that stuff, I can't, I just can't imagine. It's like, you know, it, it takes a lot of focus to see a, a film from beginning to end. Uh, and the, to make two, I mean, whenever a, a filmmaker comes out with more than one movie a year, it just like, it, it blows my mind. I don't know how they do it. I mean, sometimes it's like, like Joseph Kaczynski with Top Gun and then he had that Netflix movie this year that Top Gun had been delayed. So that makes sense. But Normally, right. if they're back to back, if they filmed it, it's like, or or the stuff like the Russos did with the Avengers, would just keep on filming for months on end. It's like I, I can't imagine that. Not, I mean, you, must, you would have to be just exhausted by the it's, end of those. It's, it's it's mentally exhausting. It's physically exhausting. It's funny because every pro every part of the process, right? You know, development's exciting because there's, you know, with development, there's no real ticking time bomb. There's no gun to your head when it comes to deadlines like there is when you're on set. You have to make your days and you have to make these decisions and prep and production. And, and, and there, but there's, 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 you know, there's like a psychology uh, with, with even development where, you know, there's all this uncertainty. Is the movie, is it going to work? Will it get made? Will it get financed? So you're dealing with that. Um, of course, when you're doing it, then you have like the endorphin spike of making the magic, but then you have the pressure of time. And then, of course, in post, you see everything that doesn't work and everything that now you have to make work and like cobble together with scotch tape and whatnot. Hopefully the audience will never know this. Um, so there's always this, it's, it's, it's just this beautiful cycle of endless, you know, beginning, middle, end to the process. And whenever you're in it, you're like struggling and you're like, oh, I wish I was back in development. But then when you're in development, you're, God, I want to be on set again. It's, it's right. always green. Grass is always greener. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, talking about development, um, it, it was a pretty relatively, I mean, for an indie uh, and coming from just having a script and, you know, doing it cold and everything. It, it was a pretty quick process to get, especially with in the age of COVID, to get financing and to film. What was the development process like? And, you know, uh, describe kind of the difficulties of knowing going in, it's not going to be a mega budget thing and time is going to be limited on top of it. I think that I was being a, being that this was my first movie, you know, there was obviously me being naive and I, I that might've benefited me because if only I knew there, I might have made you know certain decisions and and would have uh, maybe not taken a, a plunge into the depths of the abyss, which is yeah, this is 
this is a big movie and there's clearly not enough budget to do whatever it is that's in my head or that's in, on the script. Right. Um, I was, you know, I, I, it was my first go and I kind of tried to will it. And, you know, as a, I guess as a director, and this is something that I very much learned on my first film, is that you, you have to make it work. And it's easy, you know, and I have a lot of peers that have not made their first films that are very talented. And then I have peers that have made their first movies and, and everything kind of changed in their brains because you do have this concept of you want this perfect situation and you watch your favorite movies and you think that that's how it should be, but that's never the case. You know, you watch anything from Christopher Nolan to Steven Spielberg, you know, they have now created you know their reality where they get to spend 80 days on set and have years and infinite resources and money but when you make your first movie you just you kind of have to you know just make it happen and i would say that just being naive to the situation and 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 almost kind of in a way winging it worked to my benefit and i just Trust me, I was terrified and it's, yeah. it's a very intimidating experience. But I think in those situations, you keep that intimidation and that fear to yourself because you have 150 people looking at you and you, you know, as long as you can hold that secret to yourself, you trust your instincts to kick, to kick in in the moment to make all those million decisions yeah. and you live with those decisions. And, you know, it's not a perfect film. It's a first movie but I can look at it and, and, and be very proud that maybe I didn't make the 30 to $50 million movie I had in my head when I boarded it before we went on, you know, we made it, but at least it has the essence of, I guess, what I wanted to achieve. And that's all I could ask for in the first film. Yeah. Uh, what were, uh, if any, uh, well, I would imagine there are, if you're saying you're in your head, it's a 30 to $50 million movie, you end up making it for whatever you made it for. Um, what are the things that had to be jettisoned or changed uh, in order to fit that budget? So, you, you know, I guess you start to make compromises. Um, there's, you know, you, 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 you can't show things that you thought you could show. Uh, you, you rewrite scenes so that they take place in more contains. Like, for example, uh, in the film, there's a, a sequence where William seeks refuge in a phone booth. And uh, that's because the convenience store locks up when the tornado sirens sound. Right. And uh, originally, uh, there was this big scene with 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 extras that that had them survive the the tornado in the convenience store. It was a bigger set, but we couldn't afford that, so I had to pretty much rewrite it so that it took place inside a phone booth, which only housed William, and you didn't really see anything but the immediate surrounding of, of the phone booth kind of collapsing around him, cracking, and it's just containing. It's all about containing uh, wherever you can. You know, the schedule will, will dictate what you can and can't do. Uh, you know, you just kind of make compromises. And sometimes those compromises happen where you, you have boarded 10 setups. You, you have this scene play out in 10 different angles. But now you only have 45 minutes and how do you tell this whole sequence in two shots? And, and that's, that's the test that I think directors, you know, they learn very fast is, can I make these decisions in 15 minutes and, and tell the story in fewer angles 
without compromising the storytelling so the audience doesn't lose themselves. And that's yeah. that's kind of the process. Yeah, well, I got to say that, you know, in, in the specific scene you're talking about, I think I think uh, cutting out, um, you know, the, the extras and, and the, the store scene, I mean, I think it plays more effectively, honestly. Um, I think, you know, whenever you can get more, when you could cut more to the immediate and be with the character that you're following through the film, I think that's always, uh, almost always better. Uh, but the the great thing about you know in this it's a it's a curse and it's a plus in a lot of cases when you like take uh, Cameron when he made the Terminator and even Aliens. I mean Aliens, I still recall. You know this is a major sequel to a major uh, studio film, and he couldn't get the budget to have all the pods for the people in the sleep chamber, so they had to use mirrors. I remember. I, I think. Um, Oh, I'm forgetting her name, uh, his producer wife at the time. But uh, she said in an interview, yeah, they had that. They didn't have the budget, so they had to sit there and they had to be, you know, smart and 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 quick. And and they came up with the mirror idea to basically make it look like there were multitudes of chambers when they only had like three, you know. So those mm -hmm. limitations sometimes could spark better things for a film. Uh, I, I found sometimes it's it doesn't, but you know, sometimes it does. Well, yeah, to your point, you know, in that, and, and you're absolutely right, you know, what you, what you can't see, and, and, and this, is, this is true, it was true 50, 100 years ago with, with cinema, and it'll be true for another 100 years, is the audience, whatever you can't see, the audience's imagination will always be greater than whatever you can put in front of them. Right. And it was true when, when, when Spielberg did Jaws and he only had those yellow barrels to showcase where the shark was because the shark wasn't working. <laughs> that, that, that suspense yeah. was, was so much more impactful, you know, because we saw the yellow barrel, we knew the shark was under the water. And in the same token, you know, with this film, I didn't, you know, we didn't have a hundred million dollar plus budget like, like Twister did. We, we couldn't go roll an Emmerich with the skies and CGI. So I knew that if I kept the experience very subjective and I kept the camera inside or around the van, which is what a real person would experience going through storm chasing, then, then I, I knew I could control what was within the frame. And then on, on, the, on the same token, which I thought was a lot of fun, because for me, you know, this was more or less a love letter to the movies I grew up with in the 80s and 90s, where things were done practically. They weren't just uh, you know, done in post-production where the whole frame becomes like this numbing CGI. So we tried to do as much practical rain, practical wind, practical dust, and the more, you know, as much chaos as we can to really not show you, because we couldn't afford to show you that grand scape. Now, we, we did that a very you know, few select times to show the scope of the film, which I think was very successful. And we also, you know, I collaborated with a ton of people in the storm chasing community because there's a lot of great talented filmmakers that actually use pretty decent cameras to film these storms every season. So I have, I have this library of footage now that I could take from these contacts I have. And then with very minimum via, minimal VFX, I could take a foreground plate that has the actors like Anne or Alec or Skeet with a blue sky. And then of course the blue sky could be keyed out and I can take that, that shot that 
let's say Hank Shima, Pecos Hank, who's a, a pretty big YouTuber filmmaker in storm chasing, I can find the right sky and through VFX, we can, we can stitch it together via the horizon line. And then all of a sudden it's real. It's, it, you know, the, the VFX, it's not CGI. It's an actual shot of a real sky. So those are like, if, exactly, just like camera in the mirrors, you kind of find the limitations and the parameters to make your own art. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, one thing I wanted to talk about, for me personally, the, um, the thing I found to be the most surprising about the film was, you know, and you mentioned it by talking about growing, you know, talking about films you grew up with in the 80s and 90s, but the, the photography in particular is, I, I, I don't know how to describe it. it. It felt like traveling back in time because it was so perfect. I, I'm gathering you used digital on this or did you use film? We know we we had film is so expensive to do yeah. these days. Yeah, we shot on the Alexa Mini, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was a digital shot film. But it, it looks it, the photography harkens back to, uh, you know, it, I I don't want to throw Spielberg too much in, into your work. I mean, I'm, obviously he's he's somebody that you love, but there is something about just the feel about it that reminded me of say something like a close the close encounters or something like that just the the feel that um the photography gave you just the the, it, it, the photography alone speaks so much for the film i think which you know and i don't know maybe i'm you know i'm not saying that nobody said that they love the photography but for me that's the the best character in the movie that was the thing i uh connected with the most for whatever reason uh, how important is it to have somebody that really, you know, knows, or how important is your photog, you know, director of photography, cinematographer, uh, for you on on this one? Well, I know I appreciate that, and and that's exactly the vision behind Supercell, and and the many conversations I had with our cinematographer Andrew Jarek was was wanting to to bring that feel back because you know. I have to remember, you know, this movie is a family movie. It's PG-13. And, and for me, you know, to have kids who didn't grow up watching that golden era of, of cinema that you and I enjoy, uh, that Close Encounters, the E.T., the Back to the Future, I, I, I wanted to give them that experience. And, and so it was, for me, it was you know, Andrew and I discussed kind of in terms of, 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 of cinema, like the lighting of it, uh, obviously composition, longer takes, and the longer takes more or less is a necessity because you don't have time to reset and, and do a lot of different angles. So you're forced to do more traditional classical, you know, directing of the camera, which I love is more of a stage play. And let yeah. the actors block and, and, and use camera movement to tell your story. I feel like we've kind of lost that in the last 15 to 20 years with all yeah. these action films that are so cutty and very, you know, the coverage feels very television, like even though TV has progressed and it's more cinematic than it's ever been. Right. But you know, me and Andrew were on the same page and sure, Spielberg, you know, he's, he's an icon, he's an idol for me. And I watched every single one of his films, um, big influence for Supercell. And I feel like, you know, with kids today, it's hard for them to find the magic. And I, I don't want to say anything, uh, to, you know, 
I feel like they they need that experience that we had and they're not getting it. And that was a that was a big influence and, and and source for why we did what we did. Well, I mean, you know, without getting into a whole thing, I think nowadays it's like it, there needs to be more variety in terms of how you tell a story. Uh, not just even, you know, even stories too. Um, and I think the idea of having something that takes some time you know, uh, with certain scenes, it gives you the feel of the landscape. It gives you a feel for the people and where you're at. Uh, I think helps to involve the audience into the story more, honestly. And I, I just wish that not everybody wanted to follow the same temp template. And the problem is too, it's probably studios that say, hey, we need this, we need that, you need to do, you know, it's like, and people are like, well, I need a job, I'll do what they say. And, you know, there's aren't many people out there like Nolan or you know Spielberg that have that kind of clout to just say I'm making my movie and screw you. <laughs> no, I listen. I, I I know where we're headed, and I don't want to get into that conversation. But I right. completely agree. With you. I will say, you know, what also makes the the mise en scene and the you know what 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 you yeah uh, what you enjoyed so much, which which was basically the look and feel. I want to give props to not, you know, not just Andrew, our cinematographer, but, you know, our production designer, uh, Travis Arween, he, uh, he put that tangible texture. Uh, there's a, there's a very, you know, I feel like a lot of independent films, they, uh, they go cheap on production design and you'll watch these, these big movies with, with big stars and the sets just feel vacant. And uh, it just, it takes so much away. That was another thing that if, you know, you watch any 80s classic film, it's just the, 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 the textures in the sets and the, the textures in the inserts. For example, when William opens up his father's journal, it needs to feel weathered and, and, and almost, uh, you know, sweat and blood. And it just, it feels like uh, you can smell it. And I, I feel like we watch those 80 movies or those 90, early 90 films, you could smell the movie. And, and that was a big thing. Uh, also the music, uh, Corey Wallace giving us that score uh, that is original to Supercell. Big thing that we discussed was how come we can't hum the theme for our favorite movies today like we did back when we were watching Jurassic Park and E.T. and Back to the Future. I wanted to give that to the new generation of audience that, that maybe they could hum Supercell one day. Yeah. So all of that kind of lends to that classical nature you were mentioning. Yeah, now I, um, I, I did want to ask, there's, to me there's, maybe there's more that I'm not catching, but Anne Heche's character is named Quinn Brody, which <laughs> it's gotta be a Jaws <laughs> reference, right? Yeah, there. I mean, listen. There, there's a handful of Easter eggs and and just like homage, appreciation back to to Spielberg, and yes, Brody definitely. It's a. I just. I always love that. It's a strong name, yeah. and Chief Brody from Jaws. It's it. That was the name we chose for this family, and I yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it, it would. I mean, even the Quinn part. I mean, you couldn't. Her first name probably couldn't be Quinn, but it is close. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, no, the Quinn, the Quinn was not necessarily really? taken Robert Shaw. I that's that's you went one step further. I, I just ended it with Brody. Okay. Um, but interesting that you brought Quint up. 
Yeah, that, yeah. That, no, that I is, just that's what I thought. I, that's what I thought it was. It was we were trying to do, but still, regardless, um, you know, and, and yeah, don't you get me started on Jaws? I mean, Jaws. Jaws is probably my favorite Spielberg film. Um, it's yeah. changed a lot over the years, but I, I, I got to say, like my top three are probably Jaws, Raiders, and oddly enough, Munich. Munich is one of his films that I. I haven't loved much of what he's done this century. And to be honest, some of it I honestly disliked vehemently. But Munich, for me, I think is his best drama. Not, nothing against Schindler's List. It's Schindler's List was just such a bummer that it's like I haven't seen it since it came out. Like, I just don't even want to put myself through watching Schindler's List again. Well, it's interesting. I, you know, listen, Schindler's List is, could be my favorite film of all time. And I, and I think it could be the best film ever made. But... Um, I, I remember watching Schindler's List as, as almost too young to watch it. I think I watched it in my early teen years and I didn't really grasp it. I was very focused on the technical aspect of how brilliant he was in terms of blocking and, 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 and framing and all that. I recently watched it again uh, just in preparation for making this film and it, it, it hit emotionally. I, I, I started hitting on everything that as a, now as a father and an adult did not I did not resonate with that. It's, it's a was, it's a very very difficult. It's to a watch. it's a very yeah, and just uh, yeah. I remember when I went and saw that I like there are certain times when I went and saw films. I remember distinctly like I, I remember seeing remember seeing Casino and Heat on the same day back to back, and not liking either one of them at the time and ended up revising on Heat. In fact, Heat's something I watched twice a year. I just watched it last night. Casino, I'm still not, I'm still not thrilled. But I remember with Schindler's List, I think I saw, I either saw Heaven and Earth before, the Oliver Stone movie with Tommy Lee Jones, mm-hmm. Heaven and Earth, before or after. So it was just a day of just extreme depression. Like there was nothing, and I, I, I don't know why I did that, but that was just a bummer day. <laughs> Remember. you do that to yourself i don't know because i was a nut i used to go see five movies a day sometimes i was i was absolutely yeah. today i could i if i try to do a double feature at the theater i could i really don't try to do that anymore because i don't have the the temperament to to sit there that long in a theater but yeah i used to do go see five movies a day which is just absolutely insane i don't know how i did you know i had nothing Speaking- better to do Speaking of, it's Oscar week, weekend, all right? Yeah. you have a favorite pick for this year? Uh, of the ones, of the best pictures that are nominated, Tar was my favorite. Yeah, Tar, uh, that, Tar, would, Tar was that would be the one favorite. I would want to win. I think everything, everywhere all at once is going to win, which I, I thought was good, but I wasn't as enamored of it as a lot of people were. Uh, I thought it was a fun kind of silly movie. I don't, I've, I'm at a loss as to how it became this thing, but you know, uh, for me, my favorite movie last year was Babylon, which most people don't like. So <laughs> I'm, I'm in a weird group. It's funny. Triangle of Sadness was a pretty big surprise for me. I, yeah. I enjoyed that one. I did not see that coming. And I didn't I, even I, know about it up until award season. Yeah. No, I, like I that, that was also yeah under the radar. But it's true. There was Babylon, Empire of Light, and and Fablemans, all right. kind of 
hearkening, like you said, back to like the love of cinema, yeah. going to the movie theater. Uh, but yeah, it's it was a pretty good year. Uh, you know, the whale was was pretty incredible. Well, this is Brandon probably Fred. the first year in a while. I'm sort of I, I gave up on the Oscars a while ago. Uh, mm. I stopped. I'm I'm still not going to watch it because I just I can't stand award shows. I used to the Oscars used to be like a big deal for me, and I, there was somewhere along the way I was like, I don't care anymore. <laughs> yeah. As yeah, growing up too, it's it's a, I would every Sunday night we would watch it, but now being in it and going through the war and the trenches that is making these yeah. movies, it's it's almost like I have PTSD. I I, I can't watch it. Well, but, I, uh, I, yeah, but, I think I think it was the double the double hitter of for me. I was just incensed like when Forrest Gump beat Pulp Fiction and when uh, Titanic beat L.A. Confidential. Now. I can see why both won. It's just that I was just so irritated that the, the, you know, the big box office film of the year was, you know, the, the winner for some reason, but I don't know. That's just a personal gripe. <laughs> well, it, the, the good news is, is uh, in about nine days and one, like within one week of the Oscars, you'll be able to see Supercell everywhere. March 17th. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a good way to I think wrap things up actually. Um, so yeah, look for look look for Supercell in, in a theater near you. Uh, be sure to if if you're the thing I found is um, like I've got one of those AMC passes, mm-hmm. and so I look at the theaters that are actually near me, and sometimes there are theater there are movies that pop. Like I really am upset. I missed this uh, World War One horror movie called Bunker. Uh, which was playing in a theater near me. It was only playing like at night, like nighttime shows for some reason. I don't really go out to the theater at night anymore. Um, so I was bummed I missed it. But you, a lot of films don't get advertised. So yeah, if you're, you know, wherever you're at, check like three or four theaters around you uh, when, you know, on the 17th and uh, see if it's see if it's playing. Uh, and if you, you know, you want to watch it at home, it'll be available to watch at home too. Uh, so Supercell comes out the 17th. Jamie, I cannot thank you enough for being a guest today. And I I look forward to what you do next. And I uh, wish you the best with uh, Supercell. Thank you for having me, Brad. All right. Well, you have a great rest of your day, okay? All right. Take care. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye.